Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Hello and welcome to The Interview, a podcast that presents conversations with top figures in media and politics. I'm Ada McLaughlin, the editor-in-chief of Mediaite, and this week my guest is James Hamblin, a physician, staff writer at The Atlantic, and lecturer at the Yale School of Public Health. Hamblin is one of the writers who has made The Atlantic's coverage of the coronavirus pandemic so vital to understanding and coping with the last year. His latest piece for The Atlantic, titled A Quite Possibly Wonderful Summer, is a refreshingly optimistic look at what the season could be like if the United States manages to vaccinate most of its population. I called up James on Friday afternoon to discuss media coverage of the pandemic, a possibly wonderful summer in America, and whether he's concerned about the variants and other hurdles in the way of declining cases. Jim writes about health for the Atlantic and lectures at the Yale School of Public Health. He is the author of the book Clean, The New Science of Skin, and host of the podcast Social Distance. Jim, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. So we just went through a very rough winter of COVID in the United States with more cases and death than I think a lot of people expected. But now cases seem to be declining rapidly in the United States, again, a lot more than, other, than most people anticipated. And I think deaths are expected to drop as well. Could you help us understand what's going on right now? Yeah, um, I can explain part of it. Uh, so we have rapid vaccination escalation accelerating more quickly than I could have anticipated. Um, we have a partial, at least, population immunity in that places, you know, we've experienced so much loss and so much illness and death that there are good numbers of people who are already immune to the virus or at least immune to severe disease. Um, we're finally, I think, seeing, you know, people understanding, uh, at least in certain circles, that this is a serious illness and taking precautions. And overall, you know, at some point, the population is saturated with the virus, and it has nowhere else to go. And unfortunately, I think we're, we're near that, near that point. Um, what I can't quite explain is why numbers are going down everywhere. I, I, I would have expected that there would still be pockets of steady uh, transmission or even increases. And the fact that we're not seeing that anywhere is curious to me. So I don't have all the answers, but that seems to be the, the basic gist of what's happening right now. So you wrote a piece uh, last week, and it's one of one of the, my favorite pieces of journalism that I've read this year. Um, I think uh, I think because of, of of what it what it means, you know, and, and if it's if it's correct in its in in its predictions, and it laid out the case for what why we might possibly have a, a normal summer, or at least a summer approaching uh, the normality that we had before the pandemic. Um, Summer is obviously, you know, a fantastic season, and I'm a little bit sour about the fact that the last one was kind of robbed from us because of this. Could you walk me through your argument that this summer in the United States could actually be a wonderful one, as you described it in the piece? Yes, I can. I think 
if things continue apace and people continue to be vigilant and vaccination continues to escalate and people continue to get the vaccines when they're available, um, you combine that with warm weather that lets people be outside and do things that are just frankly safer than gathering inside. Um, and especially as high risk populations are vaccinated, you see, um, you know, death, death rates are going to fall that because the guidance from states is driven by numbers is driven by the number of cases in an area. If cases continue to fall as they are, then you should see, you'll, you will see, um, you know, restrictions will lift uh, accordingly. So you'll see openings of all sorts of things. And as those things open, things start to feel normal. If there are restaurants or schools or theater or myriad other things that, that suddenly you can go into at 100% capacity, it, that will feel very normal. Um, so that's the case for why it could feel normal. Um, and I, I think that's the trajectory we're on. Whether or not that's entirely wise, I'm not, I'm not certain, and I'm not certain we'll get there, but I'm optimistic because for the past year, I've given very doom and gloom type messages. And I think if people feel that there's no end ever, and that this is an indefinite sort of state of penance where you need to be isolated and masked and never be close to anyone, you know, for an indefinite period, that's unsustainable. And the next few months are extremely important, but if we can stay vigilant and stay focused and do well in the next few months, the summer could be a sort of catharsis, a sort of, uh, I don't know, repayment for all uh, all that we've gone through in the past year. Now, all of this is predicated on us being able to reach some semblance of herd immunity by vaccinating most of the U.S. population. How is America actually doing on the vaccination front? America has really turned around quickly on the vaccination front. We had a very quick development, but then a subpar initial rollout and the Biden administration has turned that around and really ramped up capacity in a way that exceeded my expectations. And so far, you know, because um, so demand is outstripping supply, things are going really well. I have a cautiously optimistic eye to the point when we have more vaccines than we have demand for. I think that's our major challenge ahead. But domestically, we're doing we're doing very well. Biden has apparently negotiated out negotiated other countries and um, you know agencies that are trying to vaccinate the world in order to procure enough vaccines for every single American to be vaccinated for free. So domestically, we are set in terms of supply and it should be with us, you know, available to, to, to lots of people earlier than I ever anticipated could be possible. I should note that you dedicate a hefty portion of your piece to examining the work that needs to be done to actually bring an end to the pandemic, which will require a Herculean global effort. In other words, we could have a great summer in the United States and dunk our heads in the pool at the standard without fear of COVID. 
but there is still an enormous global undertaking that needs to be done to put this virus behind us. What is that case? Yeah. Um, as long as the virus is spreading widely globally, um, everyone is at risk. Um, every time the virus is transmitted, it, it mutates, it mutates even inside you while you are infected. And that creates the possibility for variants that uh, could escape our, our vaccines and, and pose a threat to people who thought they were protected. We don't know that that's happening yet, but that possibility exists as long as the virus continues to spread widely. So when we think about the idea of, for example, Americans being protected just because there is herd immunity within American borders, which itself is an optimistic goal, um, that's essentially meaningless if you don't you know, suppress the virus globally. Um, the virus doesn't respect borders and what is really needed to give the world a sense of security and give vaccinated people a sense that they can go about their lives and they aren't threatened and everything can go back to normal is that you've suppressed the virus globally and you've reached a point of at least near uh, global herd immunity where the virus is just, it's just a rare thing. It's not spreading that much. So it's not mutating that much. So the possibility of a new variant arising and threatening everyone is just extremely low and we can go about our lives and that's what everyone everyone wants and it just requires a more a more global view than i think uh any given country is is thinking about right now just to go back to our conversation about the summer i, I want to talk about the specifics about what we'll be able to do i know everyone in london is sort of losing their minds because boris johnson has set a june date for when he expects clubs to be able to open do you foresee, let's say, nightclubs and other things like that being open by this summer in America? It all depends so much on our behavior. I, I, I think that's what's treacherous about setting a date because it makes people think that that is inevitable, that it doesn't depend on whether or not they get vaccinated. And, and it, it, it's up to us. You know, if people if we do a better job distributing and educating and getting people to get vaccinated, that's, that's what it depends on. Uh, I, I don't, it's impossible to know how this will go. And I don't take for granted that people will get vaccinated because I've seen what happens with things like the flu vaccine, where you have only 50% of the U S population get vaccinated despite 60 or a hundred thousand people dying a year. You know, people just don't seem to think it's worthwhile or have bizarre ideas about how it might hurt them personally. Any of those things could take place. And then if you've made a prediction about exactly when things will reopen, you can look very foolish and, and um, sacrifice credibility because you said something that you no longer can deliver on. So um, I think instead of talking about a calendar date for reopening, you talk about a percentage date. Say, when we get to X percentage of people in this population, we'll reopen things. And that puts it on, you know, on the people. If, if that takes two years, then so be it. If it takes two months, then so be it. You, you, you can't promise a date because that that incentivizes complacency and just invites you to be wrong. 
Right. I think that decision was made looking at the plunging numbers. And that sort of brings me to uh, some of the warning signs that we're seeing. Do you worry about, you know, after the optimism that we had last week, um, there is uh, a slowdown in the decline of cases now and reports of a new variant spreading around New York. Um, do things like that worry you? Yeah, I mean, I'm worried about variants in in localities right now. Um, I think it's easy to lose sight when you look at the national averages of the possibility for surges in specific places. So we don't want to forget that this is really... Yeah, it's a patchwork of of small pandemics, and we could see surges in certain areas, and and we expect to. Um, and just because the overall trajectory is good doesn't mean that every place can be complacent. And we and we need guidance from local health authorities and people. You know, might turn on the national news and hear things are good, but need to pay attention to local officials who are saying we need to be extra cautious right now. And I feel that's true in New York right now. Um, and yeah, I, I know that's a difficult needle to thread, but this is not a, uh, this is a problem that will manifest locally more and more as we go forward. When you look at the, the plunging numbers and cases are really down in almost every region in America, but there has been the slight uptick in the last couple of days. Do you see that as a sign that there could be a new wave coming or is that an anomaly and cases are going to continue to decline for the reasons that you outlined earlier? I am listening to many experts who believe that we will see another at least bump in cases because of the B117 variant. Um, it remains to be seen how big that will be. I expect that the... Uh, the deaths will continue to drop. Uh, you know, it's very difficult. Every time you make a prediction, you change you change the future. Um, that's what I've learned over the course of, of the pandemic, that if you say things are good, <laughs> then people let up and things get worse. If you say things are bad, then people lock down and things aren't quite as bad. Um, so I'm I'm hesitant to say to say much, but because things have been looking so optimistic, because the B117 variant is is spreading, I would not at all be surprised if there is a bump in uh, cases within the U.S. Mm-hmm. as a global, you know, as an, a national average. I don't think that means that locally it will increase everywhere, and I don't think it means that there will be huge surge in severe disease or death. Uh, but I'm, you know, the one, the one thing I've learned from this pandemic, you know, the one thing this pandemic has continued to emphasize is humility and anything is possible. So I don't want to rule that out. I'm wondering if you have any take on what a state like New York, which has, you know, relatively for America, intense COVID restrictions why it seems to not have done particularly better than a state like Florida, which has very few restrictions. I know it's a dumb question. It's baffled. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I mean, I think New York has fared well. If you were to factor, if you were to exclude March and April of last year. And mm. I think that's, we clearly got 
uh, off on a, a bad foot. We had uh, we were hit first, which makes sense as a global hub of you know transportation and travel. And I, I do not believe that if there had been another state where um, COVID had surged first, you know, for a long time. Uh, that New York would have been so complacent, uh, mm. you know, as someplace like Florida was uh, or Indiana, where you saw a long period, a big lag in between when New York and the rest of the world was clearly telling you, hey, this is going to come here. And yet uh, people, you know, the states didn't take precautions. I think New York was caught up in this phase, which we should have acted sooner for sure, but it's still, there was, there were almost no cases in the U S um, and it, it's difficult to generate the political will uh, to take dramatic measures when cases are extremely low. You, I think the rest of the country learned or at least saw it was possible as they watched what happened in New York. Um, it was slightly easier for political leaders in other states to say, okay, we need to, we need to do something. This is not just a, something that's limited to China or Saudi Arabia or Italy. Uh, it, it's here in our own country. So a year ago, you wrote a piece for The Atlantic called You're Likely to Get the Coronavirus. And I read it before this interview, and it's an incredibly prescient journalistic artifact because you wrote it in February when the U.S. had around 50 recorded cases of COVID. Uh, looking back now on that, do you think you would be shocked by where we are in the pandemic and uh, you know what the last year has looked like? Uh, I, I think that I think that story painted a worst case scenario, which I felt was responsible to depict. And yet part, uh, most of me did not believe it could really become that bad. Mm. Uh, and it did. It, um, it was, it was clearly accurate from the perception. It was clearly accurate from the perspective of what could theoretically happen. Um, I, for some reason, held that hope that it wouldn't, but, but it did. I mean, I think at least 40% of the population has now contracted the virus in, to some degree. Um, and I think the virus will become endemic. And it was true that it took a year to make a vaccine. And um, Uh, yeah, I think the worst case scenario has come to pass. This is a media podcast, so I do want to get in a question on that topic. How do you think the media broadly has handled covering the pandemic? Do you have any criticisms? <laughs> I, I hate the term the media. You should know. Mm -hmm. um, broad Well, yeah, it's, it's too broad, you know. Um, I I know so many good people have been working really hard and doing an amazing job covering this virus. And 
um, that's my world. And I don't know, you know, we've made, certainly I think there've been broad mistakes along the way um, about how we tend, there's some group think that happens within journalism circles. Um, but for the most part, I think media slash journalism has been the guiding light in this one. In a time we didn't have reliable government officials, we there was no plan for a pandemic where you couldn't trust the government or where the government was actively misleading you. And so we had to rely on media and, and journalism. And of course there have been mistakes along the way. But if anything, I think this pandemic proves the value of that institution and how vitally necessary it is that you have people who are willing to, when the, the president and his advisors are saying, this virus is going away, there will be no cases in two weeks, everything's under control, that you have people who are willing to, you know, <laughs> even without good evidence from, from the CDC, say, no, that's that's just not true. That's not what's happening. People need to be seriously uh, taking measures into their own hands because the government is lying to you. And so it's really hard to criticize journalists in this moment for like whatever small nuances we we missed along the way. Or uh, for the most part, the the pandemic has been a case for journalism. As someone who covers the media and has an equally intense disdain for broad brush criticisms of the media and how they cover things, I do appreciate that response. Now, there has been, from particular segments of the media, particularly conservative media, criticism of Dr. Anthony Fauci. What do you make of that? Do you think there's any merit to criticisms of him? He obviously served under Trump and was put in a tough spot there, and now is clearly speaking with a little more freedom about the pandemic. Do you think he has a good record on uh, dealing with this? Um, well, I have a lot of thoughts about Dr. Fauci. For the most part, he's he's wonderful, um, mm. and for the most, and I think there are a lot of conspiracy theories out there that are completely unfounded and insane. Sure, um, he is. He's also a political figure, and it proved true over the course of the past year that he needed to think about how he was messaging um, his public statements in such a way that would not upset the political hierarchy. There were multiple instances where he, I'm certain, knew uh, more than he was saying and was more, cons and, and was threading a needle between keeping his job and informing the public of exactly what he was really thinking. And that might be a necessary predicament of his job in such a, an extraordinary circumstance where you have a boss who's you know, actively denying the pandemic. So I don't, have, I, I don't have an answer to how he could have done better in that situation. But mm -hmm. um, there were certainly moments where I was wishing that he would say more about what he knew and what he thought the public could be doing. But I understand that he 
may have felt that he would have lost his job if he did. You wrote a book uh, that was published in 2020 called Clean, The New Science of Skin. And you had started writing it before the pandemic. Um, but I'm wondering if it has any lessons that can be applied to a year in which the world has gotten used to you know, washing their hands constantly and paying an intense amount of attention to hygiene in a way that I don't think we've seen in our lifetimes. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was a very odd time to release a book about the hygiene hypothesis and skin microbes. <laughs> but I think all the lessons in it remain true that most of the microbes that are on and in and around us are a healthy part of our ecosystem, that they are not harmful to us, that there are a small few that are pathogenic and will kill us. And that it's an, it's an important moment to make that distinction, just like everywhere in life. There are not Microbes are not good or bad. People are not good or bad. Um, there are a few outliers that are dangerous. And we, it's important that we not let, uh, you know, broad brush generalizations paint our worldview into thinking that sterility uh, or isolation is necessarily good. Uh, <laughs> It's not, we, we, we wanna hopefully get back into a place where we can be exposed to a broad range of uh, healthy, good, uh, benevolent microbes that are helping to shape our immune systems and to keep us, keep us well. And that we don't have to isolate and shelter and sterilize because of fear of one particular virus which polluted our landscape and, and infected our world and hopefully we can be rid of and does not speak for the wonderful plurality of uh, microbial existence on and around us. I think uh, an ode to microbes is a good place to end it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Jim, so much for joining me. Oh, yeah. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Interview. Please subscribe to The Interview on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and check out coverage of my conversation with James on Mediate.com. We'll see you next week.